Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jonah does not like going to sleep. During the day, she can distract herself. She keeps herself very busy, but it's in that twilight just before she falls asleep when she's laying there with nothing but the sound of the fan that she can't help but think. She has nothing else she can do then. And it's always the same story, night after night, and it has been for two years. There she's going to sleep. It's the picture of her sweet two-year-old granddaughter whom she has not seen now for two years. Hasn't seen her since the time that cancer won the battle and her granddaughter passed away. So now every night when she goes to bed, she remembers all the things she enjoyed about her granddaughter, but she also remembers that her granddaughter is no longer with her. She has passed away. It's like every night she has to go back to the graveside and stand there with her own daughter and son-in-law weeping uncontrollably and remembering once again, afresh and anew, as if it were just happening, that this sweet child had died. Now, Jonna, as she lays there in bed, she loves God. And Jonna believes the gospel. Jonna is actively involved in church. She's plugged into a small group. She serves other people. She shares the gospel with her neighbors. During the daytime, she's the one people come to when they're hurting, and she reassures them that God is very good. But it's when she goes to bed at night, those few minutes, sometimes those many minutes, before she's able to pass into unconsciousness, she has to try to convince herself of the very same thing. It's then that, like ghosts appearing out of the darkness, these apparitions of doubts appear. It's then that she has to deal with thoughts like, I know God could have made the cancer go away. I know that my granddaughter did not have to die. She didn't have to suffer. I know that God's in control. But God didn't stop the cancer. And I also am aware that all things work together for good. But I cannot imagine, being a mother herself, how any parent would allow a child to go through this kind of suffering. Even if the outcome is good, the means is so painful, so harsh, so cruel. How can God be good and allow that to have happened? Maybe she thinks, God's idea of what is good is just so foreign to my own that it will never look good to me, that it's bad to me, but it's technically good. Can I trust a God like that? And then she has the darkest thought of all. What if God simply isn't good? Jonna, of course, immediately corrects herself and feels guilt. Why do I think these things? So there she lies another night, staring into the darkness, wrestling half-heartedly with Foolhearted doubts. Is there hope for Jonah? The argument of this class is that there is hope for every Jonah and every piece of Jonah that you find in yourself. And the answer to all of these questions, and it's very clear in this case, comes down to who God himself is and whether or not we're correctly perceiving who God is. And so the point of this class is for us to first always go to Scripture and say, who is God as the Bible's revealed him, not as our neighbors may think or we happen to have opinions about him, but
but as the Bible reveals him to be, is he good and what does that mean? And then to take that and forcefully sometimes apply that to our own hearts and conduct on Wednesday when you're laying in bed like Jonah is. Now in this particular case, before we get started, I know that this is a fictional story I've invented, but of course this plays out in real life, and if you just want one example of something fairly similar to this in real life, many of you know of the late Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian apologist over there in Oxford, very significant in his writings, but he experienced something very similar to this. He was, of course, advocating Christianity, and in England for a time, he was sort of the person everybody looked to, for what does Christianity teach? And he was a very brilliant scholar, and he had taught about the goodness of God, even in the face of the problem of evil. Well, then he got married later in life, as many of you know, and then his wife got cancer, and he had to endure with her while she died, suffered and died. This was before we had some of the conveniences we have now, so there was a lot of suffering. He kept a journal at that time, and he's a brilliant Christian apologist and thinker, right? But he kept a journal at that time of what he was thinking. And here's from that journal. He says, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Most all of you have encountered pains in life of a similar severity to this. If you haven't, you will, but most of you already have. And when those happen, of course, we should immediately trust God and believe His goodness, but in this life, doubts come. Even for a great thinker like C.S. Lewis, for Jonah, for us. The question really is, is for Lewis, for everyone, for us, can you trust God? Not when everything's going well, but can you trust that God is good when you look all around and see no clear evidences of good, see lots of evidences of pain and suffering? If you can't answer that in the affirmative or when trial comes, that's cast into doubt. That's going to have a big impact on your life. Hence why we're talking about today God's goodness and your trust. So let's start like we always do and spend most of our time just looking at what the Bible says about the goodness of God. Let's get that clear in our minds and at the end we'll turn to how that impacts our trust in Him. So here is Wayne Grudem, his definition of the goodness of God. I don't always use Grudem for my definitions, but he has such good ones and in this case I will. Grudem says this, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. God is the final standard, or we could say the ultimate standard of what is good. Use that word good. God's the standard of it. And also it means here that whatever God is, whatever God does, it's worthy of approval. Now when you're reading your Bible and you find the idea of God's goodness there, you're usually going to find it 
defined a little more narrowly. So I also want to give you, so that's the broad definition. Good is God, <laughs> okay? He's the standard of it, and it's what's approvable in God. It's all that he is, all that he does. But if we narrow it down, usually when the Bible talks about goodness and when we talk about God's goodness, we're focused not on everything God does, but we're usually focused on the ways that God treats creatures well. So we could put under this category things like God's love that we've talked about. That's a part of his goodness in the Bible. Similar idea. His mercy. That's God's goodness toward those suffering or in need. You have God's grace, his goodness toward those who don't deserve it. And on and on we go. So these ideas of grace, of mercy, of love are closely related to the idea of God's goodness. So when you see the Bible say God is good, usually... It's not simply saying that everything God does is good, judgment, salvation. That's true, but usually the Bible's more focused and saying when God treats us in a positive way, in a way that benefits us, that shows grace or kindness or mercy or what have you. That's the goodness of God. So I want you to be aware of the more general definition. It's everything God does. It's approved. But the more narrow is within everything God does, usually when he's doing something that benefits us, mercy, grace, kindness. So that narrow definition, here's A.W. Tozer talking about that. So that's how he defines goodness here. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He's tender-hearted and of quick sympathy and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he's inclined to bestow blessedness and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. So that's the, that narrow definition. So sometimes when you talk, if you want to talk about God's goodness that way, very biblical, it's very right. God has been so good to me. And you're not talking about how you have a disease that he's using for good, because that is also good, but you're talking about the more direct, clear evidences of God's mercy, kindness, grace. And it's fine to speak that way, that God's been so good to me, and you mean he helped you pay your bills, you know? So that's God's goodness. But I also want you to be aware that in a technical sense, in the way we're using goodness today, it's very important that we expand the idea and this is biblical as well. So God's goodness is not just the things that are directly, clearly good for us. But God's goodness means all that he is and does, in an ultimate sense, is good. And you'll see when it comes to trusting God, why you have to have that definition of God's goodness, not just the narrow one. See that in a second here. Let me just give you two biblical proofs that God is good, one from the Old and then one from the New Testament, and then we'll break it down a little bit more. So here's one from the Old Testament. It doesn't get simpler than this. This is Psalm 136, the first verse, and I could have taken any number of psalms or passages, but you know this one probably. We sing it sometimes. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? For he is good. The Hebrew word there is tov. Just a general word like our word good refers to something positive, beneficial, useful, something you would approve of. It's good. You had a meal, it tasted good, it was good. It's a very general word, but it's positive and it's always said in contrast to what we'd call bad, okay? So general, but good, bad. And 
the psalmist is saying, you should thank the Lord. Did you thank the Lord this morning? You should. He said, why should I? Well, because he's good. <laughs> and it says, and his loving kindness or steadfast love endures forever. So the Old Testament calls God good. Here's the New Testament. This is Jesus in Luke 18, 19. You remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and asked him a question. And Jesus' response begins, why do you call me good? There's none good except God. And some of you have read that and go, wait a minute, Jesus is good. Jesus is God. How does this work? He's doing it for effect. He's doing it to show this young ruler, this young man, you think this is your definition of good, that it's among people and it's common? No, only God. So that's his point. Only God is good. But you see there Jesus affirming the goodness of God. So if I ended the class right here, no one could deny that the Bible teaches that God is good. But what we want to do now moving forward is say, well, what does that mean more specifically that God is good? All right, kind of returning to our definition, we said that God himself is the ultimate standard of what is good. And this is an important point, even if you've maybe never thought of it this way. This is very significant. So here it is stated because our definition was that everything God is and does is worthy of approval. But you have to ask the question, approval by whom? Is God's goodness defined by whether or not you approve of him, what he is and what he does? The immediate problem with defining it that way is there's a bunch of different yous in this room. <laughs> and you don't all have the identical idea of what is good. You don't even aesthetically have the same idea. Some of you are dressed very differently than others of you. Some of you husbands walked out of the room with something that you thought looked good, and your wife thought not. She was probably right about that. So we don't all have the same notion of what is good. Some of you like a particular flavor. Some of you like tapioca pudding. That's my favorite. And some of you think it's the worst consistency of all time. I understand that. but So we have different definitions of what's good. So if we're trying to define God's goodness, and this is the most typical way that people define the goodness of God, they say it's what is, what's good is what we, we approve of, and more specifically, what I approve of. So that's when someone reads the Bible and says, my God would never do that. Well, what do you mean by a statement? It's in the Bible. He did that. My God would never do that. What you're saying is, I don't approve of God as I find him in the Bible because I have a different definition of what is good than what I find right here. Of course, again, the problem is there's so many different people. Who gets to be the final arbitrator of what is really good? Or do we just take a poll and majority wins? <laughs> no, we don't. What we're saying is that God himself is the one who has to approve of himself. He's the final arbitrator of what is good. Here it is put, if you don't like Christian hip-hop, that's totally fine. I appreciate some of it. This is Shylin in his song, Taste and See. Came to my mind as I thought about this. He says, when it comes to goodness, our God is at the pinnacle. If God is approving it, then it's good. That's the principle. <laughs> well said. If God is approving it, then it's good. That's the principle. 
because God is the arbitrator. He's the standard of what is good. This is important because philosophers through all time, even outside of Christianity, have tried to come up with definitions of what is good apart from God. So if you go all the way back to what we call the pre-Socratics before Socrates in the Greek philosophic tradition, which is ours, and if you lead all the way up to Plato, the, a lot of the discussion that was happening there was what is the good life? The term that was used was eudaimonia. It's a flourishing good life. Plato and all these Greeks, without a notion of the true God, are trying to figure out what's really good. Everybody's got different ideas. What's good? And they come up with their ideas of what's good. You have the Romans who take over the Greeks, and they also are wrestling with this same question. This is all part of our tradition in the West. The Romans are wrestling with the same question. They're speaking Latin instead of Greek. So the term they use is sumum bonum. It's the ultimate good, all the way from Cicero and others. What is the ultimate good that we're pursuing? In other words, what is life about? We don't want the bad. You don't want to live bad for bad. You want to live good for good, but you have to define that. What is it? So eudaimonia, sumum bonum, and there's a long tradition of philosophy, which is beyond pretty much all of us, except a few people I see here, <laughs> to understand any of that, where people are just trying to figure out what's good. What we don't want to think is, once we come up with a definition philosophically of what's good, then we raise that up and God has to submit to that to be good. That's exactly what we're saying is not the case. God doesn't have a standard outside of himself. If God does this, then he's good. If God does this, then he's good. You're not the standard individually. Philosophy doesn't have a standard it can come up with. God himself is the standard of what is good. Now, why does that matter? Because when you encounter suffering and pain that challenges the idea of God's goodness, you're going to have to deal with that on multiple levels. The first and really the easiest level is what we just call the intellectual or the logical level of dealing with suffering. How can God be good when there's so much pain in the world? If you believe what I just presented here, which I believe is the biblical view, it is not logically possible for God not to be good. If God's being is the standard of what is good, God is God. He can't be not God. So if he is something, or if he then does something, logically, it has to be good. Does that make sense? This would be like you coming to me and let's say we separate the idea of Bryceness, and Bryceness just represents who I am, right? With all its oddities and all of its habits and everything. That's Bryceness. And if you were to come to me and say, you know, Bryce, I just think you're really missing it. Like, you, you need to become more Bryce. Like, you need to strive for greater Bryceness. And I would say, well, how, like, what does that mean? How do I, well, just look at yourself, who you are and what you do, and then just do that. Well, that's what I do. <laughs> to say that God needs to reach some external standard of goodness is to say, God, you need to be more like yourself than you are. So I hope you can see that just logically, again, we're only on the first level of how you deal with suffering. 
and how you come to trust God. And it's the easiest, and it doesn't fix all the problems. But just on a logical level, we need to start there and say, if God's the standard of goodness, then he has to do good. And if you look at what God has done or allowed or brought about, and you say, that doesn't look good to me, you're not the standard of goodness. Are you the standard of goodness? You're not the standard of goodness. God is the standard of goodness. And if that's true, God's right, you're wrong. And then you wrestle onward from there. So, just want to begin with that point. Now, we're saying God is good, and I'm kind of implying, well, if God is good, he does good. And that moves us now to this idea of it's not just that God is good in himself, but because he is, therefore, everything God does is good. There's actually a verse that says this so simply. This is in Psalm 119, the famous long psalm about God's word. And the psalmist says, God, you are good, and you do good. That's easy, and that makes sense. You are good, and you do good. How do we see God's goodness in what he does? If we're saying he is good, he does good. How do we see his goodness in what he does? I want to point out two ways. Number one, we see God's goodness in creation. You could have known this all the way in Genesis chapter 1, because after God created everything he created, he looked at it as the standard of what is good. And he saw that it, by his estimation, which is correct, was very good. Everything he made, very good. Of course, sin comes in and spoils stuff, right? But there's still evidences in creation of what God saw there in Genesis 1. He made it. Of course it's good. He's not going to make it bad. He made a good creation. And as Christians, we affirm that. Creation is good. So if you like to go out in the woods, and you like to look at the stars at night, and you like to be out there in the mud and climbing trees, or you like a beautiful sunset. A friend I met last week from Indonesia said Arizona was the most amazing part of this country to him. Because in Indonesia, they don't have anything like the Grand Canyon. It's absolutely befuddling just looking at that like, wow. So if you like nature, you look at that, you're just reflecting what God already thinks of it. That stuff, good. There is bad stuff from the fall, but creation itself from the beginning was good. This means that for you, you have had and you have every day thousands of opportunities to experience and remember and enjoy the goodness of God. And this is true whether someone's a believer or not a believer. You see and experience the goodness of God all the time. Here's our friend A.W. Pink putting it this way in his book, The Attributes of God. He says, the goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for his creatures. God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without the food being pleasing to our palates. Have you ever thought of that? The food could just be totally efficient. And my wife is at home with one of our kids right now who had a surgery. But if she's here, she would affirm to you, (laughs) I struggle with that. I want everything to be totally efficient. When I was single, I would come here to the church interning 
and I would, I had a little crock pot and I had frozen chicken and I would just put a frozen chicken breast in the crock pot and I wouldn't even buy seasoning because <laughs> I thought, why waste a dollar? It's a terrible idea. I can't eat chicken anymore because I ruined it for myself. But God doesn't think the way I thought about it. God made things to taste good. He didn't have to do that. That's what Pink is saying. How his benevolence appears in the varied flavors which he's given to meats, vegetables, and fruits. God has not only given us senses, but also that which gratifies them. And this too reveals his goodness. The earth might have been as fertile as it is without its surface being so delightly variegated. He's just saying nature didn't have to look beautiful. It doesn't have to look beautiful. You know? There is, I forget where this is, maybe this is in South America. It's, I believe, the largest cave in the world, possibly. You go into this cave, and there's literally a mountain inside the cave. And you look at the mountain more closely. Sorry to do this to you, but I'm making a point, okay? It's moving. So actually what this is, is this is an immense cave. There are so many bats on the roof of the cave that they are dropping, let you fill in the blank there, and then there are cockroaches that come and eat on that mountain that they're dropping. Now, you are experiencing disgust. Now, you realize that when you go to the Grand Canyon and go, wow, God could have made the Grand Canyon that. That could be all scenery. That could be all that we see. Disgusting. If God was bad, that's what he would have done. But it's an evidence of God's goodness that you'll walk out of here or you'll look out here. Look at these trees. There's something pleasing. God made you to be pleased by the sight of these trees. And he did not have to do that. That's what he's saying. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of the birds. So where then does this loveliness come from, this charm so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, the tender mercies of the Lord, quote, are over all his works. So you see God's goodness in creation. Here's the thing, though. We need to move because there's a second act. Number one, creation. When you look at creation and you see what's good, you can perceive God's goodness in a direct and simple sense, right? So when you go for lunch today and whatever it is that by your relative sense is good, you go there and you eat your, I don't know, steak, hot dog, macaroni, cheese, whatever. You're going to eat that and, oh, it's pleasing to your palate. You immediately have the opportunity to perceive the goodness of God doesn't even take faith. You just know, wow, he created that and that's good. When it comes to God's second action, demonstrating his goodness, it's more complex. The second action we're going to speak of is redemption. So God shows his goodness by salvation. He is good and these are the good things he does. He creates a good world. Secondly, he redeems. This is where the problem of evil comes in. This is where our doubts arise. This is where the trials appear. If God just created and had no intention to redeem, he just created a perfect world and it just went on perfect, the end, we wouldn't have any of these issues. But things get more complicated because God is so good 
that he also intended in this world to redeem a people for himself. Now, if there's going to be a redeeming, that means we have to be redeemed from something. And we don't pretend to understand how a perfect good God who does not create or cause sin, nevertheless allowed, decreed, that sin would occur. It's true. We don't understand how that happens. But it has happened, not for its own sake, but because God intended through that to bring about a glorious salvation. So, what this brings us into is a question of means and ends. Means, M-E-A-N-S, not like mean. Means meaning what you use to get somewhere or to do something. And ends, like what's your goal that you're trying to accomplish? You use a tool to dig. The shovel's your means, the digging's your end. So, means and end. When it comes to seeing God's goodness in creation, the means are good, a delicious cheeseburger. The end is good. To give us pleasure. Hooray. God be glorified. When it comes to salvation, it gets more complicated because some of the means are bad. For example, a snake deceiving Eve and bringing the curse of death upon the world. That's bad. God didn't look at what Satan did as the snake and say, that's good. No, because God's good. He knows that's bad. Could he have stopped it Yes. Herein comes the complexity. What we can say at the outset is that we know biblically that every end or purpose or goal of God, every single one, is 100% good and cannot be any otherwise. Here's where the complexity comes in. You and I are not allowed to use bad means for good ends. If I want to wake you up because you're stuck in some sin, I can't come and slap you, okay? That's a bad means. Maybe I say, well, I only slapped you to wake you up. You can still, you know, prosecute or something. I still can't do that. God can, in his wisdom and power and authority, make use of bad means to bring about good ends and that still be the most good possible. Sorry if that's a little confusing, but maybe to make it simpler for you, I'm going to draw something from Jerry Bridges' excellent book called Trusting God. If you haven't read it, go read it. Wonderful book. Love it. It's called Trusting God, and Jerry Bridges suffered a lot. Multiple spouses passed away. Multiple wives of his passed away. One after another, he experienced health complications. He suffered a lot. He was a godly man. He wrote this later in life, and Here's an example he gave. He said, while growing up in Texas, I enjoyed my mother's buttermilk biscuits made from scratch every morning for breakfast. <laughs> what are we doing in Indiana? We need to go to Texas. But there was not a single ingredient in those biscuits that I would have enjoyed by itself. And even after they were mixed together, I would not have cared for the raw biscuit dough. Only after they were mixed together in the right proportions by my mother's skillful hands and then subjected to the fire of the oven were they ready to be enjoyed for breakfast. The things of Romans 8.28, we know God works all things together for good, good ends. The things of Romans 8.28 are like the ingredients of the biscuit dough. By themselves, they're not tasteful to us. And they're not good. So many of them are not good. A loved one passing away is not good. We shun them 
And we certainly shun the heat of the oven. But when God in his infinite skill has blended them all together and cooked them properly in the oven of adversity, we shall one day say, it is good. That is really hard to accept when you live through the actual adversities of this life. Jonna and her granddaughter. And that's why he says, we shall one day say, <laughs> we'll one day know this with confidence, that God can use bad means, suffering, pain, to bring about an end that's even better than if he didn't use those means. Now, it's this second point. It's not the creation point, but it's the second point of redemption, how God redeems through suffering, even the cross, suffering, redemption. It's the second point that leads us now into this idea of your trust. Believing God's goodness in a world of suffering requires looking. Here it is. Here it is. Okay, try to make this not complicated. It's a simple idea. I just can complicate things sometimes. I'll try to keep this simple. For you to trust God in a world that has a lot of suffering in it, it is going to require this. You will have to look at those things where you can see God's goodness directly. Beautiful creation. Children, grandchildren, marriage, see it in a delicious food. Or in scripture where it talks about directly God's goodness. Or even cases where you see redemption happening. God leads the people out of Egypt. He frees the slaves. Hooray. You have to look at those. And see the goodness of God and look in your life and see the goodness of God. Remember and focus on the evidences of how God is so good. Take hold of those, keep them close to your chest. Because as you walk away with those, everything blows up around you. <laughs> everything around you looks bad. So here you are with the things that, these are real. Evidences of God's goodness. And all around you would be what we call evidences of God's badness. And to trust God requires that you hold tight to these and you use a holy imagination, we'll call faith. It's not imagination, but we're going to use that word. A holy imagination to extrapolate out. Because what you have here is I have evidences where I can immediately see God's goodness. Wow! What I have here, Scripture says, is another evidence of God's goodness, but it's not immediate. You can't just look at it. Jonna can't just look at her granddaughter dying of cancer and say, that's good. But ultimately, in the end, it is. It brings, I won't say it is, but it brings about a wonderful good. So this is good and I see it. This is good, but you can't see it. It's like there's a light turned on right here to see all God's goodness. But if you look out here, it's totally dark. And now you have to decide, looking out into the darkness, does God's goodness continue out there? I mean, I see it here, but does it continue? Or out there is God bad? And for you to trust God requires that you look out into the darkness and say, I can't see it. I can't see why God lets this happen. I can't see it. But I see this, and I'm going to trust that this continues even where I can't see it. 
The best example of this dynamic of you trusting God that way is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there on the cross, that was a dark scenario. And you have Jesus dying upon the cross. There's not an immediate evidence of God's goodness on the cross. Not in Jesus who's suffering, the Son of God. Not in the guards who are being cruel and unkind. Not in his mother who's suffering watching him die. Not in the darkness in the sky. Not in the terrible signs. None of those things give direct evidence that God's good. When we look back at the cross, you know what we see the most? That God's good. How? If you were standing there at the cross, how would you know God is good? It looks like God's a monster. He's killing his son. He's crushing him. How's God good? Because it's a bad means. And it's an incredibly good end. The salvation of the world. Even the deliverance of Jesus through resurrection. And then Jesus going into a paradise as well with a new humanity. All of that is good. It's a wonderful end. And we'll praise God forever for it. But if you stood there at Calvary, you wouldn't be singing the glorious hymns. You would be agonizing beating your chest, seeing the blood, seeing the agony, seeing the suffering, and going, why? You'd be looking into the darkness, and you would have nothing but bare faith. You would simply have to trust. I can't see how this is good. And yet, when we look back on that event, we say, in the darkness, it was good. So now we take that, and it comes into our immediate sense of good things, but we have to use that for all of the other suffering in our life to say, I couldn't see it there, but it was good. So can I apply that to areas where I just can't see how this is good? Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God can turn that bad into good, can God turn your bad circumstance into good? Yes, he can. So Jonah is hurting. She feels restless, anxious, can't quite catch her breath. Numb and feeling all emotions at the same time, however that may be possible. And she's doing this exhausted, just laying in her bed there at night, trying to go to sleep. Her sweet granddaughter's face is in her mind's eye. Every memory of it cuts very deeply. But then she decides to think this way. And really, this occurs to her for the first time in this light, she thinks, you know, the only reason it's been so hard to lose my granddaughter is because it was so good to have my granddaughter. And she realizes, I'm going to have to take a bit of a leap of faith in either direction here. Either God is incredibly good or God's a monster. And that's what she's wrestling with. If God is a monster... It means he's not good. How do I account for how good my sweet little granddaughter was whom he created? How do I account for how rich those two years were? For how exciting finding out my daughter was pregnant was? For how beautiful so many of the memories I have with this granddaughter are? For how much of the joy even my granddaughter felt? If God's a monster, then I'm going to have to make sense of the incredibly good things in this world. How would a monster bring about so many good things? On the other hand, if God is good, I'm in a similar position. If God's good, 
Well, all of that makes sense, but her dying of cancer does not. So in either case, I have to look at one piece of the evidence and extrapolate out to the rest. I can either look at the good in this world that's so rich and good that surely extrapolating out a good God must have done it and all of the evil must have some way of being accounted for. Or on the other hand, I have to look at all the pain and suffering and evil and there's a lot of it and extrapolate out and somehow explain all the really good things in light of an evil God. She realizes there's not really an easy way out of this. Simply denying God or denying God's goodness doesn't get her out of the conundrum. It's an issue either way. So there she is, still thinking late into the night. And then she whispers the verse to herself, He who did not spare his own son. And it leads her to remember, she's not the only one who lost a very precious child. God doesn't answer all of Jonah's questions, and to be honest, it doesn't take away the nauseating pain, really at all. <laughs> but just in her mind, she realizes, I can no longer think of God as if he's playing a chess game. There we are, the pieces, the pawns, and he just kind of moves us however he wants, unfeeling, uncaring, so he could be a monster, move us, cancer, suffering, doesn't faze him. But as soon as I think of the cross... I have to come up with a different metaphor. Because God's not just out here moving pieces around. His heart is on the board. His own son, one with himself, suffered horrible evil in this world. He, God, in some way it's hard to imagine, lost a precious child in a way more excruciating and agonizing than any child could ever die in this life. God has involved himself in the evil and the suffering of this world. He's not at a distance. All these things are going through her mind. The pain's still there, the fluttering feeling in the stomach. And to be honest, she'll still wrestle with this as she goes to bed at night. But it begins to tilt her mind toward the possibility that maybe she's just been seeing things wrong. Maybe it is possible that God is perfectly good, even though this had happened. Maybe it is possible for God to use this very evil, terrible end, an end of means, a means over which Jesus himself might weep on earth. The suffering and death of her granddaughter. Maybe it's possible, can't see how, but maybe it's possible that in the end, John will look back and acknowledge, God, that was good because of the ends for which you used it. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, she sings quietly to herself, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And humming these words, Jonah falls asleep. Her faith is not perfect, just like ours, is it? But it's there. And she's clinging quite desperately to a good God. There is hope for Jonah. Let's pray. Oh God, we say again, you are good. You are good and you do good. And when we have ever questioned your goodness, Lord, for that, we cast ourselves in the dust. You know our frame, that we're made of this dust. And you know that at times we struggle in the suffering and pain and heat of this life, but it's still our pride and sin that would call into question any of your doings in the world. Lord, you are good. And 
contrary evidence is now irrelevant. We extrapolate out from what we can see and what we believe through the gospel and your word and even in our own lives. You are good, more good than we've ever imagined you to be. You are everything the human heart has been created to crave and desire and approve of. Any of the shadows of goodness that we put into our movies, that we put into any forms of our art, any of the good that ancient Greeks and Romans possibly half in the dark got correct, all of that is nothing but a shadow of who you are and always have been. Lord, I want to pray for us at Faith Bible Church that you would give us a rock-solid confidence in your goodness. The last several years notwithstanding, we extrapolate and we believe, Lord, especially based on all the years before that, we believe that you are good, you do good, you do no wrong, you do no evil, and for this we trust you. In the name of your Son we pray.